In the world, there are many different roads, but the destination is the same. There are a hundred deliberations, but the result is one. Confucius. Chapter 6. Kundalini, the light at the end of the tunnel. It is my assertion that the experience, that of light, referred to in the chapter on esoteric spiritual texts and experienced by the individual spiritual philosophers, is Kundalini. The experience is also known as Samhadi, or total self-collectedness. In Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, it is regarded as the climax of all spiritual and mental activity, a state of rapture and beatitude. It is also otherwise known as the serpent power, and it was Sir John Woodruff, a high court judge in Calcutta, who was one of the first to bring the notion of Kundalini to the West. He published a book titled The Serpent Power and described the experience of Kundalini as such. The literal meaning of Kundalini in Sanskrit is coiled up, and is illustrated as a serpent coiled at the base of the spine. The symbol of Kundalini is the caduceus, or the staff of Hermes. It has also been interpreted as the force that opens up the knowledge of the oneness of life, a divine energy leading to inner illumination. Of my own experience of Kundalini, I can only describe it as a most profound and unique experience. Once it has been experienced, it cannot be forgotten, for there is nothing like it. It is neither equal to nor parallel or even similar to any previous human experience. In my case, it represented both the empiric proof which I found comforting and also the confirmation of all the study that I had previously imbibed. It offered all that blind religious faith and convenient scientific tenets failed to provide. Whilst it is an ecstatic and beatific experience, it also creates a great deal of bewilderment and confusion. One of the positives, however, is a profound sense, a knowledge indeed, of the existence of something else, and perhaps resulting from this, a distinct lack of fear of the unknown, or indeed death. It was about six o'clock in the evening, and I had been looking through a number of spiritual and academic books that I had been cross-referencing. I was sitting and idly reflecting on what exactly I cannot remember, perhaps where my study would go next. The moment was not even at a period of meditation which I had been undertaking through my course of self-imposed study, and my mind was completely open. Then, all of a sudden, I was seized, as though by some invisible and intangible force. It was an extraordinary feeling, utterly unique and totally different from any sensation that I had ever felt before. To add to the barrage of the senses came with the experience a constant whirring sound which would not abate and remains with me today. This onset of sudden energy seemed to flood the whole of my person and the dominant impression and what was so amazing and beautiful, although thoroughly confusing at the time, was the unmistakable sensation of light. The whole experience seemed to create an incredible luminescence which is almost impossible to describe as it was nothing like how one would usually envisage light, whether from the light of the sun or an electricity bulb. The whole experience didn't, I don't think, last for more than a couple of minutes and quite possibly less, although sitting through it at the time it felt as though it was an eternity. 
During the time it lasted, I remained absolutely motionless. It is difficult to say whether this was because of being constrained by the overwhelming activity around me, or if I did have a choice, whether I myself really wanted to continue to be part of this almost terrifying but nonetheless beautiful and quite unique experience. It seemed that what now constituted me was total consciousness. The focus of my being was entirely of the soul for want of a better description. It was as if the entire experience represented moments of revelation where everything was made known and comprehended, although in a rather indefinable way. Yet, despite the bewilderment and confusion, I felt the presence of an absolute and profound sense of peace which was beyond anything that I had ever known previously. And then, quite suddenly, it ended, just as suddenly as it had begun, with a discernible return to my normal self and my normal thoughts. The feeling of confusion afterwards is as difficult to describe as the experience itself, and I was left extremely shaking and wondering what in heaven's name had just happened. My own recall is that whilst there were many sensations and thoughts, such as the seemingly enhanced clarity of the senses, especially afterwards, the dominating one was of an overwhelming sense that we, all of us, all of humanity on the planet and beyond are somehow inextricably linked. For several weeks afterwards, the experience did return, but on these occasions it was in no way as powerful as the first time. It was not clear to me whether I was just tapping into the residual effects of the first instance, or whether whatever was occurring was finishing off the whole experience, so to speak. I am conscious that my description of this experience falls short of conveying adequately the intensity and impact of the entire event. Although, even as I recount this today, the hairs all over my body still stand on end at the memory of it. My experience was, for me, just like when the hairs on the back of your neck stand up after some shock or revelation. Now, multiply that several million times and extend its sensation over the whole of your body. It is still difficult today to describe how it is that, without either choice or intent, one is simultaneously physically apprehended and mentally invaded whilst at the same time exploding, as it were, along with experiencing a profound sense of a great luminescence surrounding you that you are part of. This is not due to a lack of memory, but due to the unique nature of the experience, which is, by its very nature, highly irrational and does not lend itself easily, if at all, to explanation or definition. In reading further to understand and make sense of my experience, I happened to find a description of Kundalini and an explanation of it that mirrored so closely my experience, I explored it further. I had come across the name of Gopi Krishna, who perhaps has written most on this subject, in books such as The Awakening of Kundalini and Kundalini, the Evolutionary Energy in Man. Gopi Krishna was an individual who, for many years, practiced unsupervised meditation and who, at the age of 34, suddenly experienced the awakening of Kundalini during his morning practice. In his autobiography, Kundalini, the Evolutionary Energy in Man, he recounts his own experience of Kundalini and tells of his struggle to find balance from the tumultuous experience and to overcome a variety of powerful, confusing and bewildering elements of it. He stated that there is an absence of accurate knowledge and a lack of unanimity in the writings about the experience itself, 
Furthermore, he believed that no amount of intellectual exercise could draw an accurate picture of this state, and that language used to describe normal experiences was wholly inadequate to describe that of Kundalini. It was particularly difficult in his view to find words that would sufficiently describe this amazing experience of another plane of consciousness which would be intelligible to others. This comparison is echoed by Jung when he writes in The Mysterium, Anyone who has experienced anything of the sort will know what I mean, and anyone who has not had the experience will not be satisfied by any amount of descriptions. He further states, I know of no case in which the bare description conveyed the experience. Parallels can also be drawn from Dante's epic poem. I quote, High in that sphere, which takes from him most light, I was, I was, and saw things there that no one who descends knows how or ever can repeat. Gopi Krishna describes how he was taken by surprise and how the experience created the sensation of being surrounded by waves of light and then becoming a vast circle of consciousness on which the body was but a point and in a state of exaltation and happiness. Krishna states, Entirely unprepared for such a development, I was completely taken by surprise, but regaining my self-control, I remained sitting, keeping my mind on the point of concentration. The illumination grew brighter, the roaring louder. I experienced a rocking sensation and felt myself slipping out of my body, entirely enveloped in the halo of light. It is impossible to describe the experience accurately. I felt the point of consciousness that was myself growing wider, surrounded by waves of light. It grew wider and wider, spreading outward while the body, normally the immediate object of its perception, appeared to have receded into the distance until I became entirely unconscious of it. I was now all consciousness, without any outline, without any idea of corporeal appendage, without any feeling or sensation coming from the senses. Immersed in a sea of light, simultaneously conscious and aware of every point, spread out, as it were, in all directions, without any barrier or material obstruction. I was no longer as I knew myself, to be a small point of awareness confined in a body, but instead was a vast circle of consciousness in which the body was but a point, bathed in light and in a state of exaltation and happiness, impossible to describe. Of the light itself, Krishna further described it variously as an unearthly shine, celestial light, beaming splendor, indescribable glory, a flaming radiance, a flood of luster, and others. He further stated that the effect of Kundalini is the entry of a marvelous flood of light into the whole area of the mind, leading to a radiancy of thought and imagination which must be experienced to be believed. After the experience, Krishna mentions his sense of bewilderment and how he remained in utter uncertainty about his strange condition for a long time, utterly at a loss to put meaning to the occurrence. He further stated that he delayed any public mention of it for a very long time. Krishna's graphic accounts of his experiences are the clearest and most elaborate documentaries of this experience that I have read. Gopi Krishna's descriptions of the Kundalini experience are echoed by another writer, one Dr. Bonnie Greenwell, in her book, Energies of Transformation. 
which is a synthesis of Eastern and Western perspectives of the ancient phenomenon of Kundalini. It includes 23 studies sourced from individuals who have had this experience. She gives a telling account of the experience and the sensation of intense energy that is released throughout the body. She describes, Often the first flush of Kundalini is felt as energy moving up from the base of the spine where, according to esoteric literature, it has been coiled into a latent form since birth. It may flood the body like a geezer, crawl slowly upward in a spiral motion like a snake, or flow in a steady stream up the spine and through the crown of the head. The body vibrates or feels charged by energetic and ecstatic sensations. The nervous system may be overwhelmed by intense heat, sounds or light. This radical experience seems to arise from the deepest roots of the self and sweeps one into revolutionary personality and physiological changes. She further states that it demands the reorientation of one's life. I have previously mentioned William James and the mystic experience. His entire text is full of examples of those individuals who have had a similar experience and associated it with the presence of light. James's description of the mystic experience strongly parallels previous descriptions. He states that it is natural that those who have personally traversed such an experience should carry away a feeling of its being a miracle rather than a natural process. Voices are often heard, light seen, or visions witnessed. Automatic motor phenomena occur, and it always seems, after the surrender of personal will, as if an extraneous higher power had flooded in and taken possession. It is further described as an original and unborrowed experience from a higher controlling agency and from some influence from without. James explains that in these mystic states, individuals become one with the Absolute and we become aware of our oneness. This is not dissimilar to that described in Paradiso, where we find our nature is at one with God. James then lists four characteristics of the mystic experience. Ineffability, that the subject of it immediately says that it defies expression and that no adequate report of its contents can be given in words. The noetic quality. Mystical states seem to those who experience them to be also states of knowledge. They are states of insight into depths of truth unplumbed by the discursive intellect. They are illuminations, revelations, full of significance and importance, all inarticulate though they remain. And as a rule, they carry with them a curious sense of authority for aftertime. Transiency. According to James, mystical states cannot be sustained for any length of time, but when it recurs, it is recognized. There is passivity, and of the experience itself, James describes how the individual is overwhelmed and how when the characteristic sort of consciousness once has set in, the mystic feels as if his own will were in abeyance, and indeed sometimes as if he were grasped and held by a superior power. Within the text, James provides a variety of testimonies from individuals, and we have descriptions such as he sees but cannot define the light which bathes him and by means of which he sees the objects which excite his wonder. And all the glory of God shone upon and round about me in a manner almost marvellous, a light perfectly ineffable shone in my soul. 
like a ton's weight being lifted from my heart, a strange light which seemed to light up the whole room. These are just a few of the many testimonies of the instance of light associated with the experience given in varieties, and seems to be further confirmation of the shared characteristics of this mystic or kundalini experience. It is my belief that these descriptions also refer to what Jung termed his numinous or awe-inspiring experience, and lend credence to all that Nietzsche experienced. Another aspect of the experience is the ringing in one's ears, which initially I found particularly irritating, but after some time was able to manage it. It never goes away, it seems, but after a while you merely learn to live with it. Dr. Bonnie Greenwell makes several comments on this aspect, and Gopi Krishna referred to it as the strange noise in his ears, and also described it as the buzzing of a swarm of bees. There is substantiation of my point made earlier in Chapter 5 that both the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads refer to the Kundalini experience. Krishna firmly believed this, and he provided an example from the Upanishads, where he states, I am Brahma, the Absolute, says one of the seers of the Upanishads. The light that shines in the sun shines in me also echoes another. This soul of mine and Brahman, the Absolute, are one, says a third. Krishna thought that this had been so for thousands of years, and that the very same idea in different ways and under different names has been echoed and re-echoed by at least a hundred generations of illuminated sages and yogi saints of India to this day. Similarly, there is further confirmation of my earlier argument that Jung was indeed also referring to the experience of Kundalini, as he gave a lecture on the subject to the Psychological Club in Zurich in 1932. At this time, Jung said, expressed in psychological terms, that would mean that you can approach the unconscious in only one way, namely by a purified mind, by a right attitude and by the grace of heaven, which is the kundalini. Something in you, an urge in you, must lead you to it. These experiences are secret. They are called mystical because the ordinary world cannot understand them. Jung further states that, one cannot even talk about them. Such a kind are the experiences of the Kundalini Yoga. That tendency to keep things secret is merely a natural consequence when the experience is of such a peculiar kind that you had better not talk about it, for you expose yourself to the greatest misunderstanding and misinterpretation. However, however, the question arises, is the Kundalini experience really as mysterious as it seems to be, when we find this definitive experience presented in a great variety of philosophical and historical content? In the Book of Enoch, again, there are similar references to fire and lightnings and how his body quaked and trembled, which reflects aspects of the other experiences of Kundalini. We can now consider illuminated spiritual individuals and their experiences of enlightenment. Buddha is perhaps the most notable and acknowledged enlightened being, or Illuminati, literally meaning a person who has been enlightened. Within the teaching of Buddha, we find so definitive his experience that to it is applied the date of the 8th of December, when he was aged 35, that he found enlightenment. 
In the Quran, there is constant reference to the light of Muhammad and the description of the Prophet as an illuminating lamp. Muhammad often meditated alone for several weeks on end in a cave called Al-Hira in the Mountain of Light near Mecca. Indeed, he was aged 40 and it was in the month of Ramadan that he received his first revelation from the angel Gabriel, which was associated with mysterious seizures. The Encyclopedia of Islam suggested Muhammad received a sudden prophetic call which transformed the whole of his consciousness and filled him with a spiritual strength that decided the whole course of his life. Regarding the mysterious seizures, it states that such moments may be regarded as genuine since they are unlikely to have been invented by later Muslims. These mysterious seizures must have been afforded to those around him the most convincing evidence for the superhuman origin of his inspirations. It is uncertain whether he had such experiences before he began to see himself as the Prophet of Allah, or for how long he had these experiences. Much like the fictional Faust and the biblical Enoch, he too was presented with visions and like Enoch was taken on a tour of the heavens, a journey recounted in the Quran and in the supplemental writings of the Hadith. As in Dante's Divine Comedy, he too tours the circles of heaven before returning to earth to recount the journey. Within the context of the Islamic world, there is, I believe, another example of an illuminated spiritual individual, Al-Ghazali, who may not be as well known in the West as others listed here. However, some of his writings are considered classics in the Middle East. Al-Ghazali, after a decade of intense searching, came to taste of the truth. He stated that for ten years in that condition and in the course of these periods of solitude, things impossible to enumerate or detail in depth were disclosed to him. He states that all motions and quiescences, interior and exterior, are learned from the light of the niche of prophecy. And beyond the light of prophecy, there is no light on earth from which illumination can be obtained. He further seeks to describe the state or fruitional experience as being totally lost in God and comments on the ineffability of the state when he writes, Beyond the narrow range of words, so that if anyone tries to express them, his words contain evident error against which he cannot guard himself. Further descriptions providing evidence to place him solidly in this category of illuminated individuals can be found in his references to the effect of light which God Most High casts into his breast and that light is the key to most knowledge. Over 400 texts are ascribed to Al-Ghazali and 40 books were devoted to the doctrines and practices of Islam and how these could be made the basis of a profound devotional life leading to higher spiritual levels by the way of Sufism or mysticism. We can look to Zarathustra for further evidence. He described himself as one who knows and according to Zoroastrian tradition, he too spent years in a wandering quest for truth. According to tradition, Zarathustra was 30 when the revelation came to him. The accounts mention that on the bank of a river, he saw a shining being who revealed himself as Vohu Mana or Good Purpose, and this being led Zarathustra to the presence of Ahura Mazda or God and five other radiant figures before whom he did not see his own shadow upon the earth owing to their great light. 
It was then from this great heptad or group of seven that he received his revelation. And it was after this revelation that Zarathustra began preaching of Ahura Mazda as the one uncreated God, breaking with the tradition and accepted beliefs of the time and of his people. The renowned researcher Boyce suggests that one could not hope to retrace the steps leading to Zarathustra's exalted belief, but that it seems probable that he came to it through meditation. It is interesting to note here that of this monotheistic religion, Ahura Mazda is also referred to as the Lord of Wisdom, Truth and Light. We find similar events happening to Jesus in the story of the temptation of Christ. Jesus, of course, is attributed with many references to light, such as from John 8.12 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The temptation of Christ occurs after Jesus has been baptized by John and when he retreats into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. According to the book The Historical Figure of Jesus, it is intrinsically likely that Jesus sought solitude for prayer and meditation. The temptation is also related in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, immediately after the baptism by John, where we find further relevance in Matthew 3.16. It states, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. It is, however, in what is known as the transfiguration of Christ that we see the clearest instance of the experience. It is recounted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there were three who were privileged to actually witness the phenomenon. These were Peter, James, and John, and two of them, Peter and John, alluded to it in the Bible. The verses tell that Jesus took the three disciples to what is thought to be Mount Tabor, where he was transfigured before their eyes. In Matthew 17, 2, we find, There in their presence he was transfigured, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as dazzling as light. In Mark 9, 3, we find, there in their presence he was transfigured, his clothes became brilliantly white, whiter than an earthly bleacher could make them. And in Luke 9.29 we find, And it happened that, as he was praying, the aspect of his face was changed, and his clothing became sparkling white. This instance is also alluded to in other Gospels of John and Peter. Paul the Apostle is perhaps the most powerful individual in the history of the Church, and Christian theology owes much to Paul's epistles which provided its foundations. He was from Tarsus, originally a Jew whose original Hebrew name was Saul. He was strictly trained in Jewish law and traditions and most likely never met Jesus. It was on the road to Damascus when he had his experience which resulted in his conversion to Christianity. He was approaching the city when, suddenly, there shined round about him a light from heaven, and as he fell to the ground he heard a voice ask, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? When Saul asked whose voice it was, the response was, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Saul was then told to go on to Damascus, and that he would be told what to do. Saul arose, and when he opened his eyes, he found that he was blinded. Saul remained blinded for three days. 
After his conversion or experience, Paul, as he then became known, much like Jesus, spent a period of solitude during this time in Arabia before becoming one of the most notable early Christian missionaries. Whatever the case, this account of his instance of revelation enjoys no less than three accounts in Acts 9, 22 and 26, and I am convinced that it is an expression of the Kundalini experience. I have often wondered if Moses did not have a similar experience. This Hebrew prophet was probably born in 1200 BCE and was considered by some early Jewish and Christian traditions to have been the author of the Torah. God appeared to Moses in Exodus 3 in the form of a blazing bush. It says the bush burned with fire. However, it goes on to say that the bush itself was not consumed. In the account of Moses' return from God, there is another mention in the context of light. In Exodus 34.29 it states, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with God. The account then goes on to say that when Aaron, his brother, and all the children of Israel saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, and that they were afraid to go close to him. This radiancy seems to be very similar to the transfiguration of Jesus, as witnessed by Peter, James, and John. In the book of Ezekiel, there are examples of remarkably similar imagery, when the hand of the Lord came upon Ezekiel the priest. Ezekiel looked, and a stormy wind came sweeping out of the north, a huge cloud and flashing fire, surrounded by a radiance, and in the centre of it, in the centre of the fire, a gleam as of amber. Toward the end of the vision, Ezekiel sees what looks like a throne, and the appearance of a man upon it. He saw from what appeared as his loins down what looked like fire. There was a radiance all about him, like the appearance of the bow which shines in the clouds on a day of rain. Such was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. That was the appearance of the semblance of the presence of the Lord. It should be noted that the Merkaba movement were the predecessors of the Kabbalah and based their mysticism on Ezekiel's vision. So, it does appear that this kundalini or mystic experience has occurred at the very beginnings of our religions and spiritual movements. I have already cited examples from within Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, Sufism, Jurastrianism, Christianity and Hinduism. In every instance there exists a sudden onset of an experience always entailing light, resulting in revelation and a compelling influence upon the individual to articulate and share this unique and unusual experience. The individual nearly always seems to have gone through a previous period of deep introspection, contemplation and meditation in some search for truth. This is not at all dissimilar to the experiences of the spiritual philosophers of the last chapter or at variance with the commentary given by esoteric spiritual texts. William James suggested that a personal religion will prove itself more fundamental than theology or ecclesiasticism and that churches, when once established, live at second hand upon tradition. 
but the founders of every church owed their power originally to the fact of their personal communion with the divine. Of these transformational figures and forerunners of religious and spiritual thought, James comments on how the experience transcends such individuals and quotes an author whom he does not name but states that this individual has made a careful study of the phenomena. The unnamed author comments on how the spiritual insight always comes suddenly and in an overpowering way. He states, How one after another... The same features are reproduced in the prophetic books. The process is always extremely different from what it would be if the prophet arrived at his insight into spiritual things by the tentative efforts of his own genius. There is something sharp and sudden about it. He can lay his finger, so to speak, on the moment when it came, and it always comes in the form of an overpowering force from without, against which he struggles, but in vain. Gopi Krishna supports the contention of the worldwide nature of the Kundalini occurrence. Similarly, William James also suggests that of the mystic consciousness, Hindus, Buddhists, Mohammedans, and Christians have all cultivated it methodically. In India, training in mystical insight has been known under the name of yoga, yoga literally meaning the experimental union of the individual with the divine. The follower of true yoga practice ultimately enters into the condition term samadhi and comes face to face with facts which no instinct or reason can ever know. The link between the Kundalini experience and the ancient world is echoed by Bonnie Greenwell in Energies of Transformation. She states, Allusions to such experiences of Kundalini can be found in the mystical teachings and practices of many cultures, Assyrian, Egyptian, Celtic, Greek, Taoist, Tibetan, Judaic, Native American, Alaskan, Australian, Hawaiian, Latin and African. Shamanism, Gnosticism, Sufism and Christian mysticism reflect the use of these tools, practices to awaken Kundalini. Theosophists, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, and the alchemists also reportedly have had secret practices for awakening this energy. It suffices to say that it is essential that associated with the awakening of this energy is a concentration and focus on matters profound. Whilst a teacher or guide may be beneficial, initiation of all must be by the individual, no matter what the course of action. The quotation from Confucius at the beginning of this chapter can be applied here, when he states, In the world there are many different roads, but the destination is the same. There are a hundred deliberations, but the result is one. Mascaro, translator of the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, also comments on this. Meditation is the means. Contemplation is the end. The one is the path and the other is the end of the path. Even as the vessel is still and at rest, when it has arrived in port, when the soul has reached contemplation through meditation, it should cease its toil and inquiries, and happy in the vision of God, even as if he were present, be one in feelings of love, of wonder, of joy, or other such. At a point in Varieties, William James states that even the least mystical of you must by this time be convinced of the existence of mystical moments as states of consciousness of an entirely specific quality and of the deep impression which they make on those who have them. 
There is one further and highly interesting body of evidence on the prevalence of the Kundalini experience, although given a different name, in the writing of another author who has developed his own interpretations of it. In seeking to research consciousness from both a philosophical and scientific perspective, I came across the title Cosmic Consciousness, a study in the evolution of the human mind by Dr. Richard Maurice Buke. It is a particularly interesting text because it recounts the author's own experience of Kundalini, except that he describes it under the name of illumination or cosmic consciousness. Buke describes his own experience. It was early spring at the age of 36, and he had spent an evening with friends discussing Wordsworth, Shelley, Keats, Browning and Whitman. They parted ways at midnight, and he had a long drive home. His mind was full of the ideas, images, and emotions derived from the reading and conversation of the evening, and he was in a state of calm, almost passive enjoyment. Suddenly, and without warning, he found himself wrapped around, as it were, by a flame-coloured cloud. For a moment he thought of fire, and the next he knew that the light was within himself. Immediately afterwards, he felt a sense of exaltation and immense joyousness, accompanied by an intellectual illumination quite impossible to describe. Into his brainstem, Buke continues, streamed one momentary lightning flash of Brahmic splendor, which has ever since lightened his life and thereafter always remembered as a taste of heaven. He saw and knew that the cosmos was not dead matter, but a living presence, and that the soul of man is immortal. He states that he saw and knew that the universe is so built and ordered for the good of all, and that its founding principle is what we call love. Buke claims to have learnt more in that brief period, and that the illumination had made more of an impression upon him than all his previous years of study. The illumination only lasted a few seconds in time, but its effect was indelible, to the extent that it was impossible for him ever to forget what he saw and knew from that moment, and that he could never doubt the truth of what was presented to his mind. Buke later describes the instantaneousness of the illumination as one of the most striking features. It can be compared with nothing so well as with a dazzling flash of lightning in a dark night, bringing the landscape which had been hidden into clearer view. This account seems very close to other experiences described in Caduceus. I consider it to be one of the most succinct accounts of Kundalini or illumination or entrance into cosmic consciousness, as Buke describes it, that I have ever read and further supports my contention of the worldwide prevalence of Kundalini. Up to this point, my case has been based on the experience of Kundalini by providing examples of it both in the context of spiritual texts of some antiquity and the writings of great thinkers. I then provided a foundation to my argument by paralleling these descriptions with those provided by the Kundalini commentators such as Gopi Krishna and Dr. Bonnie Greenwell. The aforementioned are relatively contemporary publications on the subject of Kundalini, Krishna was first published in 1970 and Greenwell in 1990. Yet Buke's Cosmic Consciousness was first published just over 100 years ago in 1901. Buke also writes of the bewildering and confusing nature of the experience. 
Individuals who enter into this experience of cosmic consciousness are, at first, more or less excited by apprehension, and then they ask themselves if what they see and feel represents reality or whether they are suffering from a delusion. He suggests that they doubt whether the new sense may not be a symptom or form of insanity and suggests that Muhammad was greatly alarmed as well as Paul. The fact that the new experience seems even more real than the old teachings of self-consciousness does not seem to reassure them. He goes on to say that each person who has had the experience eventually believes in its teachings, accepting them as absolutely as any other doctrine. Like others, Buke also suggested that the experience was particularly difficult to describe. In support of my own arguments on light, Buke reconciled himself with the illuminating experience years afterwards in finding examples of this subjective light in others. Indeed, the bulk of the content of his book, Cosmic Consciousness, consists of naming and providing descriptions of other illuminated individuals and instances of cosmic consciousness. His lists include Buddha, Jesus, Paul, Muhammad and Dante, who, as I have described previously, experienced Kundalini. Obviously, Buke predated Nietzsche and Jung, but had he been aware of them, I would like to think that they would have been included. Interestingly, Buke names individuals including Francis Bacon, William Blake and Balzac in his list, and others such as Moses, Isaiah, Wordsworth and Tennyson within the category of lesser or doubtful instances. Buke's aim in his book Cosmic Consciousness was to point out that there have lived in this world certain individuals who, not out of an extraordinary development or any or all of the ordinary mental faculties, but in whom the possession of a new consciousness, peculiar to themselves and non-existent, or at least undeclared, in ordinary people see, know and feel spiritual facts and experience physical phenomena which, being veiled from, are still of most vital importance to the world at large. Buke makes an interesting point, and one with which I agree and have based this book on. Of the individuals that he has listed, and the ones that I have described here with some overlap, Buke suggests that if one or two of these individuals are studied, to the exclusion of others, the result would be inadequate and unsatisfactory compared to the study of all of them. If all are read and their testimonies compared, new light is thrown upon their accounts and these supplement and strengthen those of others. I have stated earlier that this should also be applied to ancient spiritual texts. According to Gopi Krishna, the real and initial goal in front of man is to know himself and I couldn't agree more. This sentiment has also been echoed elsewhere, of course. Jesus said, Man, know thyself. And in ancient Greece, the inscription, Know thyself, stood on the temple of Apollo. It is interesting here to note that Apollo was the god of light and the sun and was originally a deity of radiant purity. Kundalini and its effects may be covered in greater detail in some future work. However, the particular beauty of my experience is defined by the fact that I did not know of Kundalini prior to the experience. It was by the focusing of an inquiring mind on profound and meaningful matters combined with meditation that it was encountered or indeed imposed upon me. It was not sought. There was no prior knowledge of it. So no one can declare that my subconscious yearned for it and therefore it came to pass. Whether or not the reader believes of my personal experience is not of great consequence. 
It was my experience that led me to write this book. However, were you to take my personal experience out of it, I hope that my assertions and contentions still stand by the variety and volume of anecdotal evidence that there is. At very least, I hope that I have provided the identification of constant, consistent and transcendent evidence that this experience exists. With this transcendent evidence, there may be reason for hope for the future. Could Kundalini as a shared experience be a light at the end of the tunnel? In addition to the benefits outlined in this chapter, it is clear that this light is a potentially unifying element for all religions. After all, there are glaring overlaps in the spiritual texts of religions and spiritual movements cited in esoteric spiritual texts. It is evident in the formation of these religions and spiritual movements the originators had undeniably and remarkably parallel experiences. The very instances of their initiation were virtually identical. Should we not view within this ever-present source a unifying element and a oneness of them all? Can we seize this opportunity to dispense with ingrained prejudices and redundant conflict between them, having identified this most profound common ground? Could this unifying oneness now become the light at the end of the tunnel?